welcome to the Recycler Podcast. My name is David Connick and my guests today are Peter Mayhew, Senior Analyst and Director at Lightwoods Imaging, and Ken Lally, CEO of Static Control Components. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, hello, David. Thank you. So, Thank you, David. That's okay. Right, Ken, let's kick off. First question to you. Has the market changed over the last 18 months? And what trends are you seeing? I mean, you're sat in, well, Reading, Bermuda, we'll cut them on to that later, or Sanford. So you're, you're probably seeing you have a big perspective of the market. Yeah, you know, static control obviously has a lot of interests across the globe. Um, it's interesting to see how the pandemic has actually affected uh, the different markets at different stages, depending upon where they were. Obviously, two very big markets for us are North America, Canada, and then the EU. And over the uh, last 18 months, from a pandemic point of view, obviously, you've seen an awful lot of stress just generally within our industry. Um, but the profile of how we do business with the stay-at-home orders being issued by lots of different governments has changed the footprint of print requirements for sure. You know, static control very much was uh, B2B uh, arrangements supplying primarily uh, components and uh, cartridges or consumables that would lend themselves to, uh, for the for the. You know, one of trying to explain it better, probably network printers, uh, large office printers. And we tended to shy away a little bit from consumer-led products like uh, Inkjet. And that's purely around our customer base being orientated to uh, remanufacturers who supply through dealers. So what we'd seen through the pandemic, and, and this is pretty true of those two key markets we were talking about was as stay-at-home orders were issued, uh, the government's legislated to keep players as safe as possible, a migration of workers moving to home office, and then the footprint changed primarily in terms of demand to uh, either inkjet or small footprint laser laser products. Um, and you saw a general decline in uh, the larger footprint, A4 and A3. Uh, that that's continued to some degree, although we've seen more recently as people started to go back to work, as uh, some of that larger footprint uh, consumable demand coming back, uh, definitely not to the pre-pandemic levels. So the way that, that we tried to deal with that, you know, moving in line with what our customers were asking us for, uh, we started to launch the smaller footprint consumables, cartridges and components. And, you know, obviously we dropped into uh, some inkjet, but the inkjet market continued to be very difficult because we saw increases of upwards of 30%, uh, particularly on the more popular remanufactured lines. Uh, and as you know, as people went to work from home, uh, the uh, brokered availability uh, remained very constrained, it was very difficult. So it was actually difficult to maintain any sort of uh, continuity through uh, the demand for um, uh, particularly inkjet on the collection side. You say demand for smaller A4. Keypoint Intelligence, for instance, said a little while ago that maybe as many as 40% of the A3 devices are not being used. Is that something that you're seeing? I think on, on the A3, uh, platform just generally the landscape on A3. You know, talking to some of the uh, original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs, 
and those guys that were involved in NPS 40% uh, was was a pretty regular figure that was reported through the pandemic in terms of decline. So if you, if you were saying 40%, I wouldn't be surprised. It ranged really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sort of figures I was hearing was anywhere from 32, mm-hmm. depending upon who. 55, 60% actually through the pandemic period in terms of a reduction. So pretty significant decline over a very short period of time. I think Peter's got an OEM client who's maybe experienced uh, the upper level of those numbers, haven't you, Peter? Yeah. You don't have to name names. Yeah, more than one that's been in that far higher category with seeing the shift there. And But, you know, what's been kind of missing, I think, a bit in this debate, as well is is some some more detailed segment data because it's it's a little bit uneven when you look at that A3 market. Some segments held up quite good. Education, for example, was not done too badly. You know, logistic. But there's other segments that, but you know, even medical. Some segments have really been been devastated and you know hit really hit the high numbers, and it and it showed some weakness. I think with some manufacturers where they were rather more heavily you know, vested into some particular vertical market more than others. So yeah, it's been an interesting time. And uh, I think we're probably running up close to the time where we see some of the fallout of that in terms of results and performance and who survives and who doesn't. I concur with what you're saying there. Some vertical markets saw lesser of a decline uh, than other vertical markets. I would say, uh, you know, my experience in uh, North America and Europe was we did see a decline generally on the uh, educational front as pupils were sent home to do e-learning. And we're just starting to see that come back now as students go back to school. You know, medical was an area that in the initial stages of the pandemic, we saw a bounce actually in terms of demand. Uh, but they, you know, the sort of guys that were involved in the cost per click on a B2B basis thing that they really felt it depending upon, you know, what business they were actually in or who their customer was. You know, at the end of the day, you can shake it down pretty much. But if you haven't got people in the office actually using the consumables, then obviously you're going to find it difficult to sell products. Have you seen much impact, Ken? Probably not at your level, but this this shift towards subscription-based charging, which I know we've seen quite heavily in the consumer space, maybe less so in the, in the B2B space, but there are a few little pockets of people trying subscription rather than uh, a click-based model. I've not seen so much on the subscription side. Obviously, I see all the figures with regards to consumer-led subscription fees, and I think that that's something for the future. You know, people do like the subscription model. Um, I've not seen it applied in the the B2B arena in any sort of scale, so it's an interesting opportunity for the future, that. On the the cost per click side, uh, you know, as I say, we have customers that are supplying medical and have, have done very well through the pandemic. And then, you know, we have customers that are supplying very large organizations, for example, financial institutions that have sent all this stuff home and don't fare quite so well for obvious reasons. Interesting. So where do you see that sector going, say, over the next 12, 18 months? Do you think that is really going to come back to pre-pandemic levels or do you think it's going to change significantly? It's an interesting question. I've seen a number of studies with regard to back to work policy. Now, here in the UK, there was some discussion with regard to a leaked Whitehall paper, which, by the way, I've never seen. I'm just listening to third party, but suggesting that the government might not enforce the back to work position. So, you know, that seems to be up in the air in the UK. What what I don't think you can ignore is the fact that um, a lot of large organisations are really sort of like looking at do they need 
need their employees to be based in an office or can they give them an element of, should we say, work-life balance that goes to working from home remotely, either on a full-time or on a part-time basis. A lot of the studies that I've seen pre-pandemic would suggest that the larger organisations had tried it and seen that there was a a general slight dip in productivity. And, you know, I've seen some stuff through the pandemic that would suggest um, organisations have seen a similar effect after an initial honeymoon period. But I think what, you know, if I was going to put my money anywhere, what I would suggest is that there's probably a hybrid model for a lot of large organisations who've already proven out that employees can work remotely and effectively using technology. You know, that it gives the employer better work-life balance. I don't think that they're going to advocate, unless they're in tech, which is the norm, that they're going to advocate working from home necessarily on a full-time basis, depending upon the role that they undertake. But I could see a hybrid model coming in. And I think that with a hybrid model, you're going to see your print consumable requirements. So I can see that uh, some of the larger organisations might adopt a hybrid uh, model and there's certain advantages to doing that. You know, obviously, from their point of view, it'd be a great cost-cutting exercise with regard to office space. From an employee point of view, if they're using the hybrid model, then uh, they have some continuity with regard to connectivity, creativity, you know, and, and just the general well-being of employees being able to come into contact and engage with other people through work process staying connected to the business. So there's a lot of advantages, I think, to the hybrid model. And I can see that some of the larger organizations uh, will definitely lean that way. Certainly, I'm talking to a number of my friends, associates and colleagues who work for large organizations. And it seems there's, there's quite a few discussions on maybe moving that way. What that would mean, obviously, is that we'll see a return of some of the larger footprint in office printing, but, you know, there'll still be a requirement for that Soho market, the the smaller footprint uh, that relates, you know, obviously working parts on on that hybrid model. You know, to answer your question, I think uh, pre-pandemic print patterns were different to post-pandemic, if that makes sense, with a leaning on the uh, smaller footprint printers while employees are actually working from home, but there will still be a return on the on the large footprint stuff. We were talking to a client probably three weeks ago. He's a bit of an old boy like me, a bit of a dinosaur. He's always been of the view that, you know, you have a desk, you do the work, you come in at 8.30, you leave at 5 and that's it. But he doesn't own the company. And there are about 120 people that work in this office. Pandemic comes along. Most of the people are working from home. And then the owners get involved and they've basically remodeled his office and he says we've got workspace we've got collaboration space we've got training space he said and we've got this networking space that looks a bit like costa coffee or starbucks and it makes him a bit uncomfortable but a year in he says actually it's working the numbers are up nobody's at home all the time you know the, the this hybrid working is a mixture of you know one day a week in the office three days a week in the office, whatever is needed, but it's a more nuanced working environment. Is it's a there's more collaboration, there's less just sit at your desk and do something. And he said, and okay, he's coming up to retire in a couple of years, but he's saying that the sales activity is up, the productivity is up, even the profitability is up when you look at COVID overall. And he actually thinks it is a model that can work. He also made a very valid point that 
an awful lot of people have jobs, you know, and whatever that job is can be done just as well at home as it can be in the office. He said the challenge for managers is not to tell people what to do, but to empower them to do what needs to be done and allow them to manage their time uh, accordingly. And he said, I've stopped becoming a manager. He said, I'm more a communicator and a facilitator, which actually he struggled with for the first you know, six months, but it's actually sort of taken to it. And, and I think hybrid working and certainly some of the numbers that I've seen suggest that two or three days in the office or two and a half, three days working from home is likely to be a model that is going to continue because not everybody needs to be at a desk five days a week. Yeah, I think a good point, and and you raise there's a number of um, really sort of like important subjects there. You know, from uh, my point of view, with regard to static control, and my experience was that, you know, the pandemic comes along in in March, and we've primarily our objectives were to make sure that all of our employees were as safe as could possibly be. So, you know, working from home was very much a requirement, and then to try to provide business continuity. And the pandemic coincided with static control upgrading an awful lot of its communication equipment. So, you know, we've got a lot of software that's uh, cloud-based that allows for super efficiency in terms of, you know, people working from home. And we made a transition to people working from home fairly painlessly. Uh, To be honest, I have to say, um, you know, on both sides of of the pond that... um, we got total continuity. We absolutely did our best in terms of keeping employees safe. And certainly from my perspective, I think that the employees actually appreciated the overall stance to the point that, you know, we continue to work remotely from home. Here in Europe, it, it wasn't new to us anyway, because you're wanting to speak many languages and you've, you know, you've got a multicultural sales force, then you either open a lot of offices or you allow people to work from home anyway and you just provide them with the tools to do it your analogy of your friend you know your old friend who said that he was as somebody that you know the best way that i can explain it is and i've always maintained this is that you know a manager's job is really to provide people with the tools to do their job and that's absolutely true but static we've always gone at that in that way it's to provide our people with the tools to do the job but now we're going post-pandemic and i think that employees will ask for a little bit more you know it's i wouldn't call it a benefit to work from home on a hybrid basis but it goes to that work-life balance and i could see people actually looking for the opportunity to do both you know to stay connected and be able to go into work when it's appropriate and to be able to make that decision to work from home um you know subject to to what they've actually got to do i, I think there's a balance there to be had and I can see a lot of organisations moving to that hybrid model. It certainly does suit modern lifestyles to have that split between home and and work. There's so many pressures in life these days whatever generation you are that to have that, those options and those choices, it relieves stress I think, you know, or certainly sort of balances stress, let's put it that way. I would agree with that. I mean, I have colleagues that, that will know quite well that I'm online fairly early have a number of calls geographically around the world at different time zones, you know, and I'll 
frequently get a call from somebody you know, i'll be asking them you know why they tabbed into work so early and it's you know the answer invariably is well i don't have the commutes given the opportunity to get a head start on the day from their point of view there's no enforcement there they're happy to do that they just set their, their own path and i think from statics point of view you, we've experienced a very positive outcome we have got continuity although business has been difficult through the pandemic primarily because we're looking for new customers and we're looking to support our existing customers and new customers are a little bit more reluctant to change direction or they've got other priorities going off through the pandemic you know involved in perhaps surviving so when you talk about changing gas supplier that's perhaps a little bit further down the rank but the work that we've done over the last 18 months has placed us so well for the future and really exciting times for us good news specifically ken how has this last 18 months or so impacted, say, on the remanufacturing sector, US versus Europe? Is there anything specific you've seen there? I think that's a really interesting uh, dynamic. You know, the pressure generally on the market for remanufacturers has come very much from the OEMs and their activities with, um, for example, HP's white box and amplified programs. And, you know, some of the other audience, but HP being the dominant printer base. And that's true of both Europe and uh, North America, Canada. And then you've got obviously product coming through from uh, China, new build product coming through at a price point that's seen phenomenal growth over the last four or five years. Remanufacturers over the last few years have been under significant pressure. And uh, definitely we've seen both the number of remanufacturers in both markets and the volumes that those remanufacturers produce uh, reduced to some extent. I think the decline uh, just generally in terms of remanufacturers is around about 8% per year um, over the last three years in terms of number of remanufacturers involved in the business. But what I would say through the pandemic, and it's primarily, I think, because of the work that uh, the OEMs have done that's that's really influencing the landscape uh, with remanufacturers, is that we've we've seen a reduction or even more pressure on the remanufacturers in North America. Primarily, I think the white box program for HP has been significantly successful for them, put, put a lot of pressure on uh, remanufacturers in, you know, the largest sort of private sector organizations, uh, volumes. HP have been very aggressive in North America, so remanufacturers are really suffering to compete or to try and compete against HP. Whereas in Europe, they, the market is quite a bit more fragmented in terms of range and the number of OEMs. And although HP have been successful to a degree, I don't think that remanufacturers have seen the same pressure in Europe as uh, the guys in the US. So what, what we see from our point of view in terms of supply is we've seen a, a pretty dramatic reduction in the number of remanufacturers in North America with a lot of consolidation and a lot of pressure on the on the volumes. And then in Europe, we've seen less of that. It's a much more stable remanufacturing base uh, just generally across across Europe. And I think I think that that's partly to do with uh, the changing dyna dynamics of product coming out of China. And it's also more important to do with uh, the OEM's activities, whether that be through IP activity or it be through firmwares or it's actually through promotional uh, contract activity like the Amplify program. 
similarly question but looking at the OEM channels is there anything distinct that you've seen emerging over the last 18 months? It's fair to say because Covid and the way that things actually rolled through I can say for sure that the majority of OEMs have become more aggressive in their position you know Canon with their takedowns through Amazon you know HP with regards to firmwares and their uh, white box programs you can see that there's a lot of pressure Canon helping to fund the HP white box program to get to a price point that makes it very difficult for remanufacturers. But with COVID, the other thing that's, that's actually happened is, you know, obviously they've got their own supply channels and production's been disrupted because of COVID in Asia uh, for sure, delaying products. And then obviously as China shifted gears and moved a lot of PPE products into Europe and North America, uh, you ended up with uh, lots of containers caught this side of the world uh, rather than China. So, you know, what's become apparent is that as freight is required and there has been a surge in demand for freight, the containers are placed in the wrong place and the container manufacturers have not really, they didn't really wise up to that until too late. Freight folders who were just barely breaking even pre-pandemic took the opportunity on a supply and demand basis and it has become more constrained you know so what so what you're saying is delays definitely in the supply chain from a manufacturing point of view you're seeing availability of to move freight is severely constrained the cost associated with doing that is has significantly increased in fact as i go to some of the rates pre-pandemic you would ex- expect to pay it's up to now thousand, three thousand dollars per forty-foot container. Uh, today, into Europe, that figures close to sixteen thousand dollars, and that's if you can actually get a slot, if you can get an expediter to give you the space. And it's a similar story in the US too. In that three thousand dollars to Eastern Seaboard side, and today that cost is uh, closer to twelve to thirteen thousand dollars. The prospect of having to pay twenty thousand dollars to get a container from China to Europe is not that far away, and it's escalating all the time. That's a scary yeah. prospect, isn't it? To you know, when you look at the implications of that on what's inside the container, it gets to be quite frightening. It is certainly got to impact uh, pricing generally for anything that's coming through China. I'm already seeing some companies within our own industry talking about, you know, service surcharges for sure to deal with something that I can't see changing until 2022, even though container manufacturers are stepping up and making more containers to be able to bring products across. Uh, the demand is one thing. And then, you know, we we sort of like touched on this in previous discussions, but you've also got the supply of chips, the worldwide shortage of chips, which is very real. I've not actually felt the impact of that yet per se, but some industries are seeing real pressure on availability of raw material for chip manufacturer. You are seeing delays in terms of silicon availability. You are seeing delays in terms of PCBAs. And that leads to a longer lead time. I was talking to an OEM just a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about their lead time nearly doubling. Uh, it was already a long lead time. For those in the know, they'll know that the uh, supply of raw material uh, from the foundries through, you know, it's upwards of 26 weeks. And that's that's all but doubled over a very short period of time. So part of the reason for that obviously is COVID and what's happened with the disruption caused. And then the other part of that is a surge in demand for what I'd call smart technology, smart design. So that lends itself to smartphones on the new 5G network, cars, transport, improving or requiring more chips. 
IoT products. So you've seen a real sort of like surge in demand for chip technology. And at the same time, COVID's brought that perfect storm to, from a printer manufacturer point of view, if they're going to get chips and they can get chips, then real question is how much are they going to pay for those chips? That's already seen increases in raw material costs. So I think that going to your point, David, that really raises the issue of uh, reuse you know, and recycle. And uh, I think that's an exciting conundrum for, for our industry, particularly for the remanufacturers. Yeah, I think. yeah. because yeah. those delays are there. It opens up quite dynamically the reuse market. And we are seeing pre-pandemic, 90% of all the technology that was taken out of, say, the end of an NPS condom uh, was exported outside of Europe. Now, today, I would say that half of everything that's coming out in terms of three, four, five-year-old technology is going back into the European market. I was actually having a conversation just yesterday actually with uh, one uh, rather large UK dealer and, and he was saying, you know, they've actually cut the amount of new hardware that they're buying in dramatically. They're actually now really substantially, you know, getting behind reusing and repurposing fleets. It's also this issue of hardware and copiers staying in for longer. And when it does come out, it's going into the workshop, it's refurbished and it's going back out again. So they're recycling their own fleets and that's proving to be quite an interesting profit opportunity for, for the channel. It's um, it's really, you know, really accelerating. And I'm hearing that more and more. I think that as you roll it out, talking about hardware and uh, general equipment, you know, there's a real sort of like renaissance in Europe, particularly for reuse, which is, you know, I mean, that's fantastic for the remanufacturing industry. Rolling it through, if you look at consumables too, I'm seeing more and more requests specifically for remanufactured products over a new build products. I'm also seeing in certain markets, for example, Russia, you know, a real demand for the componentry to allow recycling of new build products, something that the static control is looking at, had to be able to supply some customers for that particular market. So definitely there's, there's sort of like a surge in, um, should we say, request for a product that can be reused multiple times. It takes me back to the good old days when um, you had a choice of SX, 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 and you were able to remanufacture it multiple times. Those days are long gone, unfortunately, but definitely right. Give us a quick snapshot. What do you think is going to happen next 12, 18 months market-wise? Market-wise, I think there's going to be an opportunity for remanufacturers. I think the OEMs are going to continue with, should we say, the aggressive position that they've got and look at ways in which they can retain, if not improve, their market share, whether that's through technology, IP, or promotional activity. I think that will continue. I think the remanufacturers have a real opportunity. And I think the dynamic from China is quite an interesting one with the new build. I don't think that that's a short game. If you look at North America with tariff being added, and you look at what's happening from a manufactured point of view with China and then the subsequent increase in freight, the costs, which I don't see them changing anytime soon. I'm forecasting myself for a statics position that we're probably going to see increased freight costs all the way through probably the third quarter of next year. 
uh, before we see any real relief. The gap between the cost of a remanufactured product or the production of remanufactured products and new build products has significantly closed. So, you know, I'd, I see it as that renaissance of reuse. I see more of that. I see the OEMs continuing to be, quite frankly, to be aggressive in their approach to retain market share. And I see the uh, Chinese markets really struggling to hold the volume over the short to medium term at this stage. Part of the reason why, you know, Static Control had offered a very unique solution to its remanufacturers first, which resulted in offering them components. And we still have all of that ability to provide componentry and then to give them the choice if they didn't want to invest in the R&D to be able to buy cartridges. And as that's rolled forward, we've extended that range into a blended solution that lends itself to either remanufactured or new build, depending upon the consumer choice. And that combination, although it's a little bit unique because you can normally get one or the other, it's actually borne out, it's proved to be successful where a company's agenda might be different, they might be leaning towards cost saving or they might have a very particular corporate social responsibility policy and, and want to use remanufactured products. Or it might just be down to you know personal preference, but we have, in a nutshell, a bag that fits any of our customer requirements, which is fairly unique at this stage, I think. Ben, can I ask you just one question, if I may? And I was, I was a bit curious. This this voluntary agreement between OEM and the uh, and the aftermarket. You didn't mention whether that might have any impact at all when you were just summarising your view for the next sort of eighteen months there. Would we like to see any any consequence of that if we ever get that thing uh, signed and, and and put to bed? Is that is that really going to have any any impact on the market? Do you think? Static Control has been an advocate for the remanufacturing industry, and you know it'll continue to do that. The EUVA caused a lot of concern for static control. I don't think that the way that it was shaping or is shaping suited itself to giving the whole industry a voice. The OEMs were looking for supporting signatories from, say, an elite few, but that didn't represent over a thousand companies in Europe that uh, remanufacture today. It just represented 10 to 12 larger organisations. You know, my understanding as we worked through that process was that the OEMs were trying to find a balance that the EU would accept from a, um, a recycle reuse point of view and looking for support from these remanufacturers. And the EU Commission was keen to avoid having to legislate, as I understand it, due to resource issues. At this stage, you know, I'm waiting to see what the next step is, but I'm, I'm seriously hoping that they do actually legislate or they have somebody look at it with a view to legislating, because if the EU arrangement goes through as, as it is with supporting signatories, then all of the remanufacturers in the short term wouldn't have a voice with regard to that criteria, which it would be a real shame for the industry, I think. I think you're right. The market is really quite unique. If it was the auto industry, if it was a mobile phone industry, it would be better regulated than the office printing market is. And my personal view is that the, the VA doesn't work for the market. It works for the OEM and it works for maybe a few supporting signatories. I think the big challenge is that Europe is working on the green agenda and that world will change. It will mean creating more jobs in the reuse sector, whether that's mobile phones, repairing dishwashers. And that inevitably means that big manufacturers, whether it's printer manufacturers or whatever, have to change their model. And now yeah. because all those companies typically have shareholders, 
they're not going to voluntarily change a business model that may impact on their long-term business 10, 20 years down the road. Only legislation will bring about that change. Incremental legislation that starts to say, this printer has got to be in the market for five years minimum, and you've got to provide parts and support for it for five years after. You've got to provide spare parts diagram so that independent you know, repair people can fix printers. And it can be done and they can make money out of it. It's almost like they've got to be taken to the edge of the cliff, kicking and screaming, and then they'll change. But I don't think a voluntary agreement will bring about that dynamic change that's needed. And I fear that if the voluntary agreement is accepted, it's just kicking the problem into the long grass. And like you say, Ken, you've got a thousand customers. We've got you know, several thousand people on our books involved in remanufacturing from the, the smallest guys who are doing 20, 50 cartridges a month right up to the, to the big ones. That market segment will continue to contract. And I don't know how many will survive five years if change doesn't happen. I think, you know, from my point of view, we will, a statics position is that we'll continue to try to represent however we can uh, the remanufacturing community through this process, through the UVA process. And I do hope they legislate. I honestly believe that they don't legislate this time, that they'll legislate next time. But, you know, I mean, that's that's three years down the line. Well, then finally, David, if you want it. Okay. And finally, let's talk about football. Why don't we lighten the subject, talk about the Euro 2020? Just lighten the tone just a little bit. But I wanted to do that just in the context of, did you read the uh, the numbers that apparently Wembley's going to be increasing its capacity up to uh, to 60,000 people? There's obviously some very stringent testing and proof of vaccination requirements going behind that, but that's um, pretty large, uh, large attendances there. I, I just wonder... I think, myself, well, that might mean for trade shows as we go a bit further well, forward. I think that bodes well, as long as it can be done safely and correctly. Mm. And I think from a trade show perspective, we want, first of all, vac- vaccinations. We want to be able to go to a trade show, engage safely and successfully. So I don't mind if I get have to have a test going into a trade show. And Absolutely. As long as I can meet somebody face-to-face without plastic screens, without masks, I can go and have a coffee, you know, have a glass of beer in in the evening or whatever. That's what I want. I want to do that as yeah. safely and effectively as possible. So hopefully, you know, by the end of this year, that is going to be a much stronger reality. But yeah. Ken, I understand that you're 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 going speed dating in Florida next month. Well, it's funny. It's funny, you know, as, as uh, Peter raised that subject, um, Static has long been an advocate of, you know, the availability of being able to network with all of its customers, uh, yeah. particularly through events like Paper World. You know, and I'm hoping that we do get a speedy, safe recovery to back to exhibitions because they definitely work for static control. It gives us a, a really great opportunity to be able to network. But you're right, actually, um, we are a approved vendor for purchase group called IBPI, uh, some 97 members in the US. And they've, uh, as you know, the US is opening up a little bit quicker than yes, uh, the rest of the <laughs> the rest of Europe and uh, 
and they they have an event uh, July 20th to the 24th and the format of that event is um, basically to meet as many of these uh, members as you possibly can and the format's like a, a speed date sort of uh, arrangement where you get eight minutes with each member to promote or to conduct a business uh, conversation so I'm actually uh, I've got guys go into that I'm super excited to see what the uh, the outcome is yeah. it should be good it's definitely going to be fun that's that brilliant. I, I mean, it's positive to see people starting to reconnect face to face. And I, I'd be interested to see how you get on. Yeah, yeah for sure. I'll make sure I feed it back. That's great. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Okay, guys, thanks for your time today. It's been great to hear from you, Ken. Every success uh, with the event in Florida. When do you get to start traveling again? Um, well, I'm hoping that uh, UK will relax rules for July 19th and then, yeah. uh, you know, for for us uh, you know, British citizens, obviously the US has still got a, um, a restriction in place. I'm hoping they'll lift that. So maybe at some point towards the end of July, I'll be able to get back into the US without having to uh, quarantine significantly one way or the other. Because I understand you did have to quarantine on one trip. You you were forced to stay in uh, Barbados for two weeks. Oh, that I must have been tough. I couldn't possibly comment on that, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it, Ken. Thank you.